The future belongs to those who see the possibilities before they become obvious. Welcome to Fireside Chats Without the Fires with Neil Toff and Paul Catherell. Fireside Chats Without the Fires. Audience, this is going to be a great one. We have a thought leader, author, commentator extraordinaire in our midst. We're really excited to have the one and only Matt Watkinson with us. Paul, let's welcome Matt. Matt, are you out there with us? Hey, Matt. I am. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Lower your expectations, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're very lucky to have Matt. We got him up a little bit early, West Coast time, where, where he is, uh, to, to have him here Friday morning, September 25th. By the way, it's amazing how fast September's flying by here. Um, but Matt, it is great to have you. Uh, I, Paul and I have both followed you on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. I'm in the midst of reading your, your latest book, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, and I think if anyone that is in customer care uh, or customer experience fields, and certainly if you're on LinkedIn, they have to be connected to you somehow, right? I think you're out there putting out, putting out some great com commentary and, and thoughts. So it really is a pleasure to have you. Thank, oh, thank you for you. joining. Um, for those that may not know Matt, obviously go to his LinkedIn profile. And if you don't have his LinkedIn profile open like I do, I'm going to share with you. Matt is currently the CEO and co-founder of Methodical. He is also the author of, for at least from my eye, two books, The Grid, which is his latest book. We'll talk about The Grid. Uh, and then an earlier book, The 10 Principles Behind Great Customer Experiences. Matt, would you mind telling us first, tell us a little bit about Methodical for those that are not familiar with it. So Methodical is, um, is the day job, um, writing, uh, commentary on LinkedIn and books and that kind of thing is, and speaking, they're all a sideshow. The day job is running, uh, the business and we do three things really. The first is experience design, primarily UX UI work and, and customer experience more broadly, uh, in the sense of more kind of multi-channel experiences uh, and designing and refining those for a roster of clients across Europe uh, and, and America prim primarily. Uh, we also help people with new product development and, and, and concepts and strategy, which is kind of trying to make the most of the IP from, from the grid, the second book that, that you mentioned, which provides a very structured way of approaching that task. And the third thing that we ended up doing uh, by accident, really, is helping people with what I suppose you'd call their strategic narrative, which is a way of helping them to kind of articulate their vision or their ideas or their concepts in a way that makes them easy to understand whether it's internally, whether it's selling um, or whether it's raising money for investment. So it can be pitch decks. Um, investment theses, business plans, and that kind of thing. It's not quite marketing because it's not interesting or sexy. It's more kind of functional communication. Uh, and we found that having been involved in writing books, involved in the strategy stuff, involved in, in presenting at quite a high level, uh, those skills naturally have lent themselves to that. So that's something that we kind of ended up doing by accident. Uh, it was emergent rather than, than planned. So we do those those three things, the bulk of which is is the experience stuff and the strategy stuff. 
Are there any particular industries or company types, verticals, et cetera, that you work with? Or are you a little bit all over the board? And I say that um, in a complimentary fashion. I'm all over the board in the type of companies that, that we serve. Um, we don't have the luxury necessarily, especially in one industry or one type. Uh, do you have a specialty or are you really just uh, um, many things to many different organizations? No, the pattern is that there is no pattern, actually. I would say that there's there's a slight skew towards health and, and pharma, but n not for any good reason. Uh, and and I don't think I, I think that's a series of coincidences rather than 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 a specialism on our part. I mean, to to, to counter that, you know, we're we're also working in technology and and food and have done all sorts of other weird things over the years. So yeah, there there really is a uh, a theme, but that's good. Really, it's good to 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 have a diverse diet because you are able to see what commonalities and, and distinctions there are across how people approach their work. Uh, so that, that diversity of experience actually, I think, stands you in, 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 in better stead because you have more, more to draw on when you go into a new engagement. You know? Sure. It's quite rich, I think, if you have experience in health and, I don't know if you have health and healthcare, uh, some might even say, what experience? That, that pharma and health and healthcare don't care about customer experience or patient experience. Um, I, I'd love to know your take on that. Do you, do you find that pharma really gives a squirt of, you know what, about about the consumer and the patient and, and what their customer experience is like? Uh, I have a stack of invoices here that say otherwise. So yeah, I would say they really do care about it. <laughs> Tell us if you could, if we could go and talk about the grid. I, I'm fascinated by the grid. So again, the grid, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm just reading it now, um, is not necessarily, it seems to me, a customer experience or customer care book. It's a business book. It's a strategy book. It's a, it's a management book yeah. um, that very much does have a component to it about the customer and the importance of the customer. Is that a fair assessment? And if you could just kind of tell us about the customer care component, because that's really what our audience, I think, is mostly focused on, the customer care and why that's so important in a company's overall strategy. Okay, so the year is 2012. Uh, I've written the I'm writing the 10 principles behind great customer experiences book and um, against all expectation that book did, did, did really well. And a flood of, of project requests come in wanting help with customer experience projects. We read this book. We think you're the guy for us, yada, yada. And one thing that I realized very early on in, in that transition from being a kind of cubicle dweller to being a, a kind of consultant was that most of these people were assuming that the customer experience was the, the, the problem or, or the solution rather without even really stopping to ask what the, what the problem was. You know, so they would say, we, we want to grow 
and and so we want to do this customer experience project or you know we'd say they'd say we're in decline it, it must be the customer experience and to me as as a as an outside observer it just seemed obvious that in the vast majority of cases first of all it, it probably wasn't the problem and and they definitely hadn't stopped to figure out what the problem might be so for example you would say well let's say we're launching a new product uh, and they would say it's it's failing in the market it must be the customer experience i would say well how do you know that people want to buy this product from you does it fit your brand do you know that they want to interact with you on this channel do you know how this product compares to to alternatives on the market um what's your advertising like how much reach do you have what adoption barriers are there is the pricing right is the revenue model right and they just go well, i have no idea we i mean we never thought of any of that we just assumed it was the customer experience so what i i quickly realized was that most businesses did not have a way of seeing their what they were doing in the broader sense and how the activities that they were doing laddered up to the performance of the whole what i thought we needed was a way of seeing the business from above if you like where you could identify overall what the strengths and, and, and weaknesses were and also to understand the second order effects of your decision making so let's say we are doing a customer experience project what other aspects of the organization or our environment is that aiming to impact is it aiming to improve retention is it aiming to increase purchase frequency is it aiming to improve the acquisition of new customers is it aiming to change perceptions of the brand is it aiming to give us more pricing power is it aiming to satisfy a goal that is going unsatisfied or lower an adoption barrier or, or lower the cost of serve whatever it, it might be and people didn't have a systematic way of of of, of looking at that and this is one of the reasons why we have this perennial problem in in customer experience that, that people can't really prove the value of doing it it's because in a lot of cases those projects are unhitched from the commercial aspirations of the organization and and what they're trying to achieve or even the constraints to performance right so the grid was a way of setting these projects in context and ensuring that they would deliver returns because you know you were tackling the real the real problems or you might even say, well, actually, customer experience isn't the problem and we, we shouldn't invest in that. And maybe, maybe it's brand building or, or advertising or, or product development, whatever it might be. So the genesis of the customer of um, the grid book was actually seeing the challenges of succeeding with customer experience projects and then extrapolating from 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 there so the first book led on to the second but you're right in that it's a, a broader it's a broader strategy text and you can use it for three things you can use it um to assess the whether a project is a good idea you can use it to assess the strengths and weaknesses of an existing business or you can use it when you're blocking out a startup to make sure that you just thought through it in a kind of structured way so the the grid i have a um i think i have it in front of me and i wish we could whiteboard this together unfortunately we can't note to audience go get the book so you can see the grid itself uh there's a 
the middle square in the grid is quite interesting to me. It, it was something that I wasn't, I don't know, either expecting. It just kind of caught me by surprise. And I'd like if you could mention it. It talks about bargaining power. And I think you just alluded to in your explanation. I think you didn't use the term bargaining power, but I think you were talking about it in regards to what options the customer has in the marketplace. Could you touch on that just a little bit and why that's so important? Yeah, so the, the importance of bargaining power is, you know, really first articulated by uh, the, the, the famous kind of strategy theorist, Michael Porter, back in the, in the 80s, I'm guessing. And he was basically making the argument that every organization is sandwiched between its customers and its suppliers. And whoever has the most negotiating power gets the best deal, right? So if I buy as your customer, if I contribute 90% of your revenue, right, then, and I say, I want a discount, what are you going to do? You're going to say no, like you'll be out of business if, if, if they, they take their business elsewhere. Uh, and on the converse with, with suppliers, if, if what supplier provides is, is massively in demand, um, then, then their, 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 their prices go up and down. So what you're really looking at there is that your, your profitability as an organization is, is dependent on your negotiating power with both customers and suppliers. Got it. Can we switch gears for a second? So you are someone, uh, I, you used a term I thought was was, was a cute term. Um, I think you said, um, what did you say about cubicle, cubicle dweller? So you're clearly someone who I think is, is thinking. <laughs> you are, you, you spend time reflecting, thinking, uh, researching, but you're also out there very much in the yeah. field, I believe, in, in the marketplace, uh, doing concrete, specific things, re, you know, those of us on this side of the fence, we call them real life things. You're 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 in there. You're, it looks sounds like you're talking to customers. You're evaluating. You're measuring. Um, could you give us you know just maybe the audience a couple examples in your eye of companies that are doing things that are right? Well, you know, I think any uh, any growing profitable business must be doing something right. You know, so, I mean, there are a, a, a billion and, and one examples. Um, and, and the important thing to acknowledge there is that many of these organizations, and, and this is kind of one of the key key takeaways from the grid, really, is that they may be pursuing different strategies or they may have different strengths and weaknesses, right? So, you know, doing things right doesn't necessarily mean they have the best customer experience. It can mean that they have that they have the, the, the best product or whatever. So the, the point that I'm always trying to get across to people, and I'm, I don't mean to be political about it and like answer a totally different question like politicians always do, but the point I'm trying to get across is that you compete as a business on total value. You don't compete on customer experience. And that value emerges from the product, the brand, the awareness, and the interactions along the, the, the continuum of, of, of your relationship. And what you're trying to do is maximize the value um, given your, your competitive landscape, right? So it could be that the, that doing it right actually involves developing a new product or investing in the brand, or it can mean investing in the customer experience. But ultimately what you want to do is win on all of them. Like you don't want a table with three three legs where it should have four because it will be wobbly. You want to create as much value as you can across all four of these. And then the other thing that you want to do, which which is a real driver of our philosophy behind customer experience, is that when you bring these things into alignment, 
when the brand promise is matched by the reality of the experience, when what we say we're going to do in our communications is met in reality, when there's a, a kind of seamless um, or, or at least cohesive relationship between the, the product and, and the broader continuum of interactions that sit around it, whether it's purchase or, or service, the effect is super additive. So instead of one plus one plus one plus one equals four, you get one plus one plus one plus one equals like 60. So my whole point of or philosophy around customer experience is that it needs to be considered in context. And what you're trying to do is make it highly integrated and coupled to the other marketing activities that are going on around you, because then you get exponential returns from all of your activities. It, it amplifies the value of all of them. And the problem that we have in the discipline is that it's kind of an isolationist movement. It's like, we're doing this, we're the best, we're the most important. You guys are kind of smelly, horrible marketers and we don't want anything to do with you. And, and that is really entirely self-defeating, you know? So the, the, to, to go back to your initial question, who is doing it right? I think the brands that are able to, to connect these activities together uh, in a way where the experience feels branded or in a way that there's obvious kind of cross-disciplinary um, stuff going on that, that, that joins everything up are, 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 are really good. Um, and historically, like Apple was always the bellwether for that, but less so maybe today, but a lot of brands uh, still do a very good job of that. Patagonia, for example, I think would be one, yeah. one of them. Patagonia Outfitters, apparel, correct that one? Yeah, the outdoors company. Yeah, got it. Interesting. We haven't come across that one. Typically, we'll hear of Apple or Amazon uh, or Zappos. Uh, it's nice to hear a, a newcomer to it. And by the way, quite unexpected because it's just, I think of Patagonia and it's the fleece that you wear when you want to look sharp, uh, when it gets a little bit cool. Um, I wouldn't have thought about wow moments being associated with that. I would have thought about, oh, comfortable. Yeah, it works. It, it matches. It's uh it doesn't fade, it doesn't shrink. But you're saying, you're suggesting, I think that it does offer and, and, and more than deliver on expectations. It goes beyond the expectations of uh, customers and offers maybe a wow or delight. Is that a, a fair suggestion? Yeah, so I mean, look, in, in terms of what I'm talking about with, with the consistency here, Patagonia as a brand is based uh, is is based around uh, this environmentally friendly mission of doing no harm and contributing to uh, solving the climate crisis. So let me give yeah. you an example of how they bring this to life in their products. Right, they have wetsuits that are now made of of an eco friendly alternative to neoprene. Right, uh, Ulex, I think it's called, or Ule. I'm not quite sure how to to pronounce it. It's a kind of uh, alternative to 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 neoprene. And along with that, they also offer free repair service, which I've actually used when I had uh, I I ripped my my wetsuit uh, uh, last year or, or the year before when I was out surfing. So you have an experience which is the free repair and the product and the brand all in alignment. Now the other amazing thing is when I got my wetsuit repaired, it came back looking like new. 
It was delivered slightly earlier than they expected, and there was a free copy of a surfing magazine in the box and a thank you note saying, we're so glad that you chose to repair this thing rather than replace it because it supports our mission of, of being environmentally friendly. So it's an incredible example of pulling together the brand, the product, and the experience uh, in a very cohesive and, and amazing way that makes you think, well, why, you know, why the hell would I want to buy this kind of product from, from anybody else, you know? Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. What if we switch gears to head to the final third of this session here? Cause we, we, I think, I feel we could go on and on what we just talked about. We, we really touched on the services, some really interesting concepts. Um, but, but for consistency, we'd love to wrap up the show with, uh, your take on three different topics. Could you share a CX myth buster, something that's out there in the marketplace that is commonly talked about that maybe you just don't agree with or want to take an ax to it and just destroy? Feel free to take something, an ax, and destroy a CX myth. Well, I think, you know, probably certainly one of the biggest challenges, I think, is that there's this this mental model that goes like this customer experience is about satisfaction and satisfaction is about loyalty and loyalty is about is how you make money. I'm not sure that, that, that the evidence really supports that claim. For example, for starters, customer experience is a means towards achieving a, an, an end either for the customer uh, or for the business. So to start by saying customer experience is about satisfaction or satisfaction scores, is is absurdly self-limiting. Second, we know that brands, through 50 years of evidence, that brands grow primarily through acquiring new customers, not deepening loyalty effects. So, you know, to, to then layer on top of that, the assumption that that the way to, to better support your business is through improving loyalty is, is, is kind of absurd. So, you know, you, you end up with an entire discipline or certainly deep pockets of a discipline that are basing their activities on assumptions that are are not evidence-based they feel good to say of course it feels good you know to talk about satisfaction and and loyalty but it's not based on 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 the evidence right so you've got a lot of people going off spending their company's money on things that literally cannot demonstrate returns because it's mechanically impossible it's like you know, when you want to take a screw out, you use a screwdriver, you don't use a, a, a wrench, right? It's like using a wrench instead of a, a, a screwdriver. It's not really going to solve your problem. So, you know, this is is the myth that, or the dogma that I certainly am trying to, to help people overcome. That, to be fair, I once believed myself, you know, in my, you know, before I, before I continued to keep researching and, and learning about this stuff. So it's not, you know, much like a kind of reformed smoker, they're always the worst. Like people who actually change your, you, their mind about these things are actually more virulent and aggressive. I'm one of those types when it comes to this particular problem. So, you know, I think that's um, that's the thing that I, I really and and however hard I try to get this message across to people, they just they they kind of don't want to hear it, and and that's a real problem for the discipline. You know, what what's sensational is there's a ton of things you just mentioned, um, and each one of them we could unpack or double click on and spend probably an hour talking through it. I, I love that you focus on the acquisition portion of the journey. Um, I think you also referred earlier to uh, in your, your, your day job, 
UX um, user experience. And, and I think that I assume that's part of the overall journey, what it looks like pre-purchase and then purchase process. Uh, and I think too often uh, when we talk about CX, we don't refer to that portion of it. And I think for time purposes, we don't necessarily need to dwell on it right now, but that, like I said, it creates an opportunity to have a whole set of other discussions about how critical those things are to the top line and to the bottom line. Companies are right, you're right. They survive on acquisition, not only loyalty. So I, I really appreciate that, thank you for that. Um, if we could move into the uh, second of these, this last third here, share some CX quotes. You have some really uh, bright ideas here. Um, also, uh, new to us, because sometimes we, we get some of the same quotes from some of the same people from our guests, but there's some really nice things that you've you prepared in your CX quotes, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure. So, um, well, I was just trying to hit on on uh, some themes that kind of matter to me. So uh, the first. I'm just trying to make myself look look smarter than I am, I guess, by by quoting Shakespeare. But uh, don't worry, we all in do. all's we well all do. that ends well. Quote, quote an Englishman. Just quote well, an Englishman. Doesn't matter who it is. My, you, you look good. <laughs> my wife is something of an expert in in this area. Actually, it's it's uh, her her kind of professional in, uh, interest is is in in this area relating to kind of. Uh, Shakespeare and his work. So uh, I'm kind of surrounded by these things anyway. So uh, there's this wonderful line from All's Well That Ends Well. Oft expectation fails and most oft there where most it promises. I have been talking about the role of expectation in customer experience for for a very long time. I was trying to figure out how, how long. It was certainly in my first book. My approach to it has been refined subsequently. But my whole point point with that is that basically, you know, you, your perception of an experience is contingent on your expectation, and we don't spend enough time thinking about or managing those expectations in a proactive way. In fact, I, as a kind of research piece recently, I bought more out of morbid curiosity than anything else. Most of the books on journey mapping and journey modeling, and the word expectation doesn't even appear in the index in any of them, let alone as its own kind of swim lane or, or whatever when you're modeling out expectations and that to me just is 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 a catastrophe anyway so the first thing that i was talking about was was expectations which i, I think are are neglected and, and and very important and then the other quote that i had uh was just talk less and do more i think somewhere along the way customer experience has become something that's endlessly strategized over and analyzed and you know there's a lot of hand wringing and furrowed brows and powerpoint slides and meetings you've got to do things right you've got to get out in the world and actually change things and fix things not overcomplicate it not you know turn it into a into a grand science experiment most of what works in this discipline is actually really simple and most of what's very clever just sucks sucks up money and resources and time and doesn't really deliver so you know i'm a try to be a, a, a pragmatic person i think people just need to get out there try it and see learn and and, and make the focus on 
on action above all you know i am so tempted to follow up and offer thoughts and applaud and shout and scream because i love this quote but i'm going to follow the advice i'm going to talk less on this one because uh, it does <laughs> it, it truly speaks for it, it speaks for itself let's head to the final third of, of this your cx heroes you have an interesting cx hero kindly share that with the audience who you look up to and why Well, yeah, I mean, the, so I, I run the, the, the business methodical with my, my, my partner and, and, and uh, best friend, Ben Smith. We've worked together for 13 years and he, he is really in the engine room in, in, in many ways in that he manages and runs, you know, our biggest accounts and What's funny about the way that our business works is that because I'm the kind of, I guess, talking head and I'm more active on social media and I'm at the podium and I wrote the books and stuff, you know, I tend to, uh, the, the inquiries tend to come to me, right? And then as soon as they meet Ben, they're like, who's that guy? You know, like we're done with Matt now, it's, it's, it's the Ben show. They just, people just fall in love with him, right? And, and I become the <laughs> invisible man. And I'm happy with that. I, I, I like that. But he, he does a tremendous job of, of providing and manifesting everything that, that we are, are, are preaching about and trying ourselves to practice. And he really does a tremendous job of that. As, in fact, does everybody who works who works with us. I don't want this to turn into like an Oscar speech where I start, you know, listing all of the people who <laughs> at, at, at work who do a tremendous job, you know, they know who they are and our clients certainly know who they are and, and, and they know that it's, it's, it's them. It's not me. Right. So yeah, I think that the, the team, the team that I, I consider myself very fortunate to work with are, are my, Heroes, I guess. And also, you know, along with that, our clients, our clients are, our clients don't buy, they choose. They can choose to work with anyone, right? So the fact that they choose us and the fact that they put their faith in us and the fact that we get to contribute to their success and the fact that they go out and fight the good fight, you know, I really admire and respect all of our, our clients for what they're trying to to achieve as well. In in terms of brands, I think we mentioned Patagonia. I yeah. the, the the when it comes to heroes and 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 that kind of thing, I as I put in my response to you, I think it's more important to focus on the organization because the the, the challenge in in a big company at least is to make these things consistent at scale. Right? It's not to have one or two superheroes who rush around with their hair on fire you know, trying to do everything is it's to embed it within the business. So the companies that have managed to do that, I think are the ones that I really admire and respect. And there's a, there's a ton of those, uh, Patagonia being one. Um, I think I, I mentioned the Beverly Hills hotel or the Dorchester collection, uh, series yep, yep. of hotels. Uh, I know some of the people there, Ed Mady and Anister, Alison and Esther at the, the Beverly Hills hotel. I mean, that really is an amazing place. Uh, an, an incredible place to, 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 to go and stay. So, you know, that's another example. I think Alaska Airlines, they do a pretty good job. 
Yeah, they, they've they've got they've 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 they know their business very well. They've always taken great care of me. So yeah, I mean, there's loads, but those are the kinds of companies I I admire. The ones who who have got the whole thing joined up and and functioning at scale, and they're they're have rock solid basics and occasional flourishes. That's the message that I, I want to leave people with is that this is what a great customer experience looks like. Like right first time or very right the second time, get the basics right consistently. Don't get anything too wrong and the occasional flourish and that's all you need. Brilliant. Brilliant. Matt, you are a gentleman and a scholar it has been a pleasure having you on our show. We thank you so much. To the audience, my parting words would be, go buy Matt's books, follow him on LinkedIn. Uh, you will find yourself enriched. Uh, there's some thought-provoking concepts in there. Uh, he's doing some really great work, and uh, we probably have some great stuff to continue to look forward to him putting out into the market. And uh, Matt, once again, thank you for joining us. It was a true pleasure having Thanks. you on the show. Thanks, Matt. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. All the best. Fireside Chats Without the Fires wrapping up. Neil Toff, Paul Catherall. Thanks, audience. Tune in uh, as we have sensational guest after sensational guest. Today was just a, uh, uh, a really thought-provoking one for me. And, and I just like to close the show with some great things to reflect on. And I got to continue to plug ahead and read his book, The Grid, and continue to follow him on LinkedIn. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Matt. This has been another episode of Fireside Chats Without the Fires with Neil Toff and Paul Catherall. Follow Neil and Paul on Twitter at Neil Toff and at PaulCat72. Podcast feedback and topic suggestions are always welcome. Thank you for listening.